Well, it is good to stand in this place again. It's um, always something I look forward to, and yet it's something that brings me great trepidation to open the Word of God before you. I encourage you to take a copy of the Scriptures and open to the Gospel according to Mark chapter 1. <clears throat> we plan, <clears throat> we are planning to launch a new verse-by-verse expositional uh, series of sermons on the Gospel of Mark. And um, we launched that today, God willing, and don't have any end date in mind. Just whenever we get to the end of the book, uh, we, will, we will get there. Today I'll read in our hearing verse number 1 of Mark 1. Mark chapter 1, verse number 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray together. Holy Father, for your word we are grateful and pray now your mercies, your blessings, your unction upon us, both speaker and listener, as we begin our journey in this great and wonderful book known as the Gospel According to Mark. May we see Christ, and in seeing Christ will lives be positively impacted for the good. We pray this in the blessed and holy name of Jesus our Savior. Amen. I want you to imagine with me for a moment, <clears throat> the Bible is like two great cities sitting on two very prominent mountaintops. In one of those cities, known as the Old Testament, there are five major streets that are found in that city. And on those five streets, there are 39 homes located on those five various streets. In other words, there's Pentateuch Boulevard. It has five homes on it. There is History Avenue. It has 12 homes located on it. There's Wisdom Lane. It has five homes located on it. There's Major Prophet Road. It has five homes. And there's Minor Prophet Road. And it has 12 homes located on it. In the other city, we'll call it the New Testament. Also upon this very prominent mountain there, are likewise five major streets in it. And there are 27 homes on those five major streets in that city. There's Gospel Heights that has four homes. There's Axe Avenue that has one home. There's Pauline Street that has 13 different homes on it. There's General Epistle Boulevard. It has eight homes on it. And there's Apocalypse Highway, and it has one home located on it. Now, on Gospel Heights, this street in this city known as the New Testament, there are four similar but very different magnificent homes. And they're called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Outwardly, these homes are very, very similar. Their profiles even look much the same. 
Their shapes resemble one another. But inside, every one of these magnificent homes are vastly different. They have wonderful adornment, but it's arranged in different ways. And these four magnificent homes have withstood the test of time. They have stood for centuries, actually. And during that time, they have been pummeled repeatedly by strong winds and vicious enemies that would vandalize them, even burn them down if they could. But these four wonderful, magnificent homes, along with all the other homes, still stand today. Well, on Gospel Height, each of these homes was built by a unique builder. And each home bears that builder's name, as I've already pointed out. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, collectively, they share a common name. We call them the Gospels. And yet we know there's only one Gospel. So I'm not reading four Gospels. I'm not reading four variant Gospels. I'm reading one Gospel. So even though we call them collectively the Gospels, we know that there is one primary message, that is the Gospel message, that each of these homes proclaim. Now it's proper when you're beginning a series that you give some attention to the background of a book. You look at such things as the context, the author of the book. Where is the book's place in the canon of Scripture? What is its genre? Is it poetical? Is it historical? Is it prophetic? What is it? You consider some outstanding themes of the book. Now, it's important for me as we begin this series as a pastor, and if it was another pastor starting this series, it would be important for them to take some time before we just rush into the house and start picking up all the treasures in the house and looking at it and trying to just involve ourselves in that is to take a step back and look at the house and appreciate some general things about the house before we go through the door and begin to try to uh, understand all the individual parts and various things that are found in that house. It's important for me to do this because, or any pastor to do this, we're told, I'm told in 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Well, if I'm to rightly handle the word of truth, I need to take the time to back off, look at the context, consider some of the various questions I've already uh, noted in your presence. It's also important for you that you do this as well, because this is going to provide for us, hopefully, some, some foundation, some context, some structure. And I often try to remind people when I'm talking to them, Carl, let us know what's going on because everybody wants to know. Uh, Try to remind people that one day you're going to meet the author of the writer of the book. 
one day you'll be in the presence of Mark. And it would be kind of nice to know something about Mark, wouldn't it? And the book he wrote, and how he wrote the book, and why he's the author of the book. So I think it's important for you that we also, before we just begin to go in and explore the treasures, is to back up and ask the question, well, who wrote the book? Who is the audience of the book? When was the book written? Where was the author when he wrote the book? Why was the book written? Are there particular themes in the book? Any, she's good? Okay. Thank you, brother. Um, what is the biblical and historical context of the book? How is the book ordered? Are there divisions in the book and so forth? So with that in mind, we want to today we want to just take a look at the profile of this house, admire it, learn something about its author. I'll not try to answer all those questions, but you get the idea of what we want to try to do today. Now I may refer to this book as the Gospel of Mark. I may refer to it as Mark or the Gospel of Mark. I mean the same thing by any of those titles when I refer to it. Until about 150 years ago, Mark was viewed really as an inferior gospel. And there began to be a change of view on Mark about, about a century and a half ago. Prior to that, it was considered a quote, this is a quote, a rather artless and pedestrian gospel. The consensus of the early church fathers, and this has influenced really the view of the church of Christ, is that Matthew was the primary gospel. He's the first writer. Thus, he's located first in the canon. And Mark was placed second, except in some copies of Scripture, and some he was placed fourth. But Mark was placed second because it was considered an abbreviation, a, quote, inferior abridgment of Matthew. So it's kind of like Reader's Digest. That was the way Mark was viewed. You can read the real book or you can read Cliff Notes. And Mark was sort of viewed as that inferior abridgment of Matthew. Even in the 16th century, one scholar wrote, Mark imitated Matthew like a lackey and is regarded as his abbreviator. And so even as late as that time frame, we're talking about this particular view on, on, on uh, Mark. In Augustine's Harmony of the Gospels, he notes that Mark has a great deal of material that's in common with Matthew, and that Mark's wording is very similar to the wording of Matthew. And Augustine postulates based upon that, that Mark was the second gospel to be written as I've already said it's an abridgment but let's think about this for a minute and like I said about 150 years ago thoughts on Mark began to shift but there's the age-old question what comes first the chicken or the egg let me ask you a question which translation came first the authorized King James Version that translation, or did the Tyndale translation come first? Well, 
the King James is translated in 1611, the, at least the New Testament portion of Tyndall is in 1526. Now, how much of the King James is... How much, how much of the Tyndall... Let me raise, phrase the question that way. How much of the Tyndall version is directly translated into King James? Well, Tyndall didn't live long enough to finish the Old Testament. The church, the Catholic Church burned him at the stake. We studied about them this morning in Bible study. But they burned him at the stake because he was putting the language of the Bible in the vulgar language of the people. How dare he do that? And as we learned even this morning in Bible study, up until just the recent past, Mass was always done in Latin. It couldn't be done in the vulgar language of the people. And so Tyndall is an enemy, and he must be stopped. So we must burn Tyndall, because he is translating the Scripture from the original text into English. So about 76% of the Old Testament directly comes from Tyndall, and about 90% of the New Testament of the KGV comes directly from Tyndall. Now, do I assume that Tyndall is a lackey and a brief abbreviation of the King James? Actually, no. I understand that the KJV actually built on Tyndall. It quotes him, his translation, directly. Well, Mark is the shortest gospel, depending on your translation, about 660 verses. 606 of those verses reappear in the Gospel according to Matthew. Did you get that? 660 verses, 606 of which reappear in Matthew. 380 of which reappear in the Gospel according to Luke. And so there begins this radical shift concerning when did Mark write the Gospel? And where does it fit in the canon? And really what begins to emerge is that Mark, rather than being an abridgment of Matthew, really is a primary source for Matthew and for Luke. So I quote now from Sinclair Ferguson, in his little book on, or actually fair-sized book on Let's Study Mark. And he writes this, When John Mark wrote out his good news, and that's what we read in chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel. When John Mark wrote out his good news about Jesus 2,000 years ago, his Gospel was a completely new kind of book. No one had ever written one before. In fact, no one would have known what a gospel was. Of course, books about great men and the records of their lives had been composed. What made the gospel of Mark unique was this. It was not written merely as the memoir of Jesus as a great man. Not even the greatest man who had ever lived. Rather, it was meant to persuade its readers, most likely Gentile Christians under the persecution of Nero, it's written to persuade its readers that Jesus was the Son of God. It is the earliest reliable record we have about 
Jesus. For that reason, understanding Mark's Gospel is a major step in coming to know, understand, and believe in Jesus Himself. Which takes us to a question for a moment. How is it that the Gospels were developed? How did they come about? Well, we, we know something about how most of the epistles came to us. For example, you read in the book of Corinth that Paul said that he had heard about a division and schism in the, in the church at Corinth, and he had heard it from the household of Chloe. And based on that, he begins to address this division in the church. And then later on, repeatedly, like five or six times as you get on into the book of Corinth, he will say, now concerning... Now concerning, and whatever the subject is, that's what he addresses. Whether it's foods offered to idols or marriage or offerings in the church. In other words, he had gotten a question about, what about food offered to idols? And so he responds, now concerning. And so Paul is writing in a reactive way the book of Corinth. He's addressing problems in Corinth. And he's addressing these questions. How about the book of Galatians? You get into Galatians, what's Paul doing? Well, he says, I am surprised, I am shocked that you are so quickly turning from the true gospel. There is but one gospel. And I don't care whether you hear it from angels or the most lofty of men. If they're not preaching the true gospel, anathema, let them be accursed. There's but one gospel. And so Paul is responding to what was called the the, the problem of the, of the Judaizers, of trying to mingle and mangle grace with works. How about the Gospels? Well, the church is founded upon the oral apostolic witness. Now, turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts for a moment. Acts chapter 2. Look at Acts chapter 2. Peter is preaching, and he's preaching on the day of Pentecost. So what gospel does he have in his hand? None. None have been written. Which Old Testament script does he have in his hand? Probably none. He has it in his heart. He has it in his mind, and he quotes from them. But he doesn't. he's not carrying around a, a script of the... A manuscript of the Old Testament. Not too many people would have had them. You go to a synagogue to, to find something like that. That's why when Paul preaches in a synagogue, he will open the book, he'll open the, 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 the role that they have, and he'll read from that and he'll preach Christ. But Peter's out on the street, as it were. He doesn't have a gospel book, but he preaches. And he preaches, as he's preaching to them, he says in verse number 32 of Acts 2, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. I'm telling you, I'm declaring to you what I saw, what I am a witness of. That's what he's preaching. Then you get on into Acts chapter 2, verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness... He is witness. He is a witness of Christ. And then go over to Acts chapter 10 for a moment. 
when he's preaching to the Gentiles in the house of Cornelius. Look at verse 39. Again, back in 36, verse 36, and for that word that he sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, you yourselves know what happened through all Judea. They've heard about it. But now Peter is there preaching to them, and he says, and we are witnesses. Now if you're called to be a witness, you must know something about what you're called to be a witness about. And so Peter is declaring, this is an oral apostolic declaration of what I witnessed. Acts 10 verse 39, And we are witnesses of all that He did both in the country of Jews and Jerusalem. They put Him to death by hanging Him on a tree. Peter witnessed that. But God raised Him on the third day. Peter witnessed that. And made Him to appear. We, Peter saw Him. Not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. Well, that's not fair that He chose these few, but He did. He chose us as witnesses who ate and drank with Him after He rose from the dead. When Christ comes back on that first Lord's Day, in the, in, in, after post-resurrection, He asks them, do you have any fish to eat? And He eats it with them. In, the, in their presence, in front of them. And verse 42, And He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify. We testify. We are His witness. That He is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and dead. To Him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. You read in Acts 8 what Christ called these apostles to. Acts 8, in chapter 1, verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses. And the Greek there is the word martus from which we get our English word martyr. You will be my martyrs. You will be my witnesses. You are eyewitnesses. As John would say, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands, that which we've seen and heard, we proclaim to you. So Peter's not opening in a gospel. There aren't any. He is bearing oral apostolic witness and this is what the church is built upon. But as time goes by, that oral apostolic witness is inscripturated by God so that the church would have it until He comes again. Now the purposes then of the Gospel are not biographical per se. Sure, we read about Jesus. We're told a lot about Him in the book of, of Mark or any of the other Gospels for that matter. But they don't record many things that you would expect to find in a biography. And they become then the speculation of wild imaginations. Well, what did Jesus do after He was 12 years old till He was 30? Well, He must have gone down to Egypt or somewhere and He got into some sort of spiritualism. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us that. 
What color is his hair? I don't know. What color are his eyes? I have no idea. There's a lot we're not told that you would expect to find in a biography of somebody. So the Gospels aren't merely biographical. That's my point. They're not merely biographical. The purposes of the Gospel, or the purpose of the Gospel, is not merely to describe Jesus. Rather, it is to proclaim Jesus. It is to proclaim the Gospel. Yes, the Gospels tell us a story, but they do so in order to preach the message. And the message is that Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners. So yeah, they tell a story, but they are declaring the Gospel. Now let's look at the nature of the Gospel according to Mark. There's three things about it I want to note. First, it is compact. I've already noted it's the shortest of the Gospels. It's compact, but this we must believe if we believe in plenary inspiration, which we claim that we do, and I do. That is that every word is inspired by God Himself. It's not just happenstance that Mark is the shortest, but this is on purpose. Gratian Machen writes, the greater length of Matthew is due chiefly to the inclusion of discourses by Jesus. In Matthew, Jesus appears as a teacher. So in Mark, He is presented as a worker. Now, of course, Matthew and Luke include the works of Jesus, the deeds of Jesus, but their emphasis is on the teaching of Jesus. Mark also includes the teachings of Jesus, but there's a lot of things that Matthew and Luke record, Mark doesn't record because his emphasis is not on Jesus the teacher per se, but on Jesus the faithful servant of Jehovah. So Mark focuses not on the words of Jesus, but the works of Jesus. Therefore, he's brief. Secondly, the Gospel according to Mark is very vivid. Very vivid. My studies in years gone by in Mark, that's one of the great things I've always loved about Mark is his vividness, his attention to detail. I can tell you a a story, when I say that I'm not trying to cheapen Mark, but I can tell you a story about a friend I know that was bitten by a dog. Well, that tells you I had a friend that was bitten by a dog. Or I can tell you about my friend who is uh, redheaded and ran for his life because this dog was rabid and it finally trailed him down and bit him. That's, that's vivid. Mark's vivid. He's short, but he's vivid. It's Mark alone that tells us in chapter 1 of Mark, verse 13, that when Jesus was in the wilderness for temptation, that He is among, quote, the wild animals. It's Mark alone that tells us that the paralytic man that was carried to Jesus was carried by four men. It's Mark alone that tells us during the great storm on the Sea of Galilee where the apostles thought they were going to die because the storm was so vicious. It's Mark alone that tells us that Jesus is not only asleep, but He's asleep on a pillow in the stern of the boat. 
It's Mark alone that gives us the age of Jairus' daughter. That man who came running to Jesus pleading for his daughter that is sick. And Mark tells us she's 12. And it's Mark alone that tells us in the feeding of the multitude with the five loaves and two fishes that Jesus had the apostles to seat the people on, quote, the green grass. Thus, he's very vivid. And his vividness comes through this detail. And these details indicate an eyewitness. That I wasn't just told the story, but I witnessed the story. The Gospel of Mark is rapid. You ever had a conversation with a person where it really didn't matter if you were there or not? Because they speak so fast and there are no end to their sentences. There's no periods. There's just conjunctions. And it just, I mean, just like, well, and they just on and on and on. Well, that's kind of the way Mark is. And on purpose. Flip the, there you go. I don't know if you can see this or not, but this is in chapter 1. You see all those yellows? That is in Greek chi. Now, your translation might not have all that. We'll get another translation. Get one that's a word for word, okay? And actually, you got a couple of more in the old 1901 ASV than, than is in this one. This one's good. All of those are ands. Can you see the blues? Every one of those blue references is the word immediately. And so as you go through Mark chapter 1, and doesn't do it just in chapter 1, Mark is like this non-stop, and, 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 and immediately, immediately, immediately. Let me give you an example of this. Look in your Bible to Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 9. You can go back on the slide. Mark chapter 1, verse 9. See if I can get them all. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when He came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove Him out into the wilderness and He was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And He was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to Him. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'd have turned in a paper in English uh, years ago in college, Dr. Day would have sunk my ship if I'd have used that many conjunctions. <laughs> what do you mean starting sentences with a conjunction and? And just repeat it. Repeat it. Well, this gives a sense of rapidity as you go through Mark because it's... Jesus did this, and He did this, and He did this, and immediately He went there, and He did this, and He did, and immediately He went there. And so you're just, it's going, boom, 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 boom. Works, works, the works of Jesus. And Mark does, uses another technique, and I've often found this very amazing in Scripture. I uh, find it also with the floating of the axe head, but I won't get into that today, but find it right here in Mark. He uses this technique repeatedly, and it's called the sandwich technique. It's where you start telling something and you interrupt that whatever it is you're telling with something else and then you come back and you finish it over here. And so you've got like the, the two pieces of bread and something in between. 
In Mark chapter 5, you've got that. You've got it in a lot of places, but this is a classic one in Mark chapter 5. So you've got Jesus and the crowds around Him, and Jairus comes and He pleads with Him, please come to my house and heal my daughter. Oh, must come to my house. And so Jesus starts going with Him, and He's in the crowd, and all of a sudden somebody touches Him. That's where the story then goes. I, I, thought, I view that as interrupted miracle. Because now Jesus stops and He deals with the woman with the issue of blood. And I've often thought, would you like to have been Jairus standing there? I would have been like pulling His coat. You must come now. You don't understand. But as a sandwich technique, Christ is going. He stops. He's interrupted. He performs a miracle of the healing of the woman with the issue of blood. Then He goes on to the house of Jairus and raises her from His daughter from the dead. Because meanwhile, she has died. Mark uses that. And so you got one thing, then another thing, then another thing. He's sandwiching them. So what? <laughs> now you told us a lot. I don't want to be a data dumper, so, but so what? So Mark is uh, compact. He's vivid. He's rapid. Well, the Holy Spirit deliberately presents Jesus as the tireless servant of Jehovah in the Gospel of Mark. Yet, Jesus is not a neglecter of His inner life. Among all the ands, sandwich techniques, and immediatelys, Jesus, we see, is a man of prayer. Notice Mark one thirty-five. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And this is in the middle of all the hustle and bustle of the ends and immediately. After feeding the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6, verse 45, after, um, well, after, after the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark 6, 45, immediately he made his disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the, the crowd. Part of what's going on here is to get away. You must take time down. And in 1435, knowing that His arrest is here, what do we find Jesus doing? Praying. The point I would make is that Christ's life, although busy, is not one of endless, pointless, frenzied activity, but rather it is a life of His work he is a servant of the Lord and His communion with the Lord. And the nature of the Gospel of Mark teaches us about the centrality of life and its focus. It's not just doing, doing, doing. But it's also communion with God. Communion with God. Communion with God. What about you? 
anytime I talk to most of you, even those, those that are retired, I, I consider myself semi there, but even those that are retired, when we talk, we go, it's, it's, been, it's been a frenzied, hectic, crazy week. Just never can seem to get caught up. There's always something to do. And we live in a world and a society that really presses that on us and really puts it front and center. If we're not busy at work, we're busy in some sort of form of entertainment or recreation. But we're busy. We're busy, 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 busy. I'll not preach it, but in Mark, I'm looking forward to whenever we get there and whoever's preaching it. But when we get to Mark chapter 2, He's going to teach about the Lord's Day. And He's going to say, Jesus is going to say because He's accused of picking grain on the Sabbath day. And He's going to respond to that to those Pharisees who really didn't understand the principle of the Lord's Day. That God made the Sabbath for man and not man for the Sabbath. It's not found in the do list. It's for your well-being. And the Lord's Day is a day that every believer should be looking forward to in the middle of a very busy life because this is the time that God has carved out for you as a human being, particularly as a professing believer in Jesus Christ, to turn away from the crazy busyness of the world and focus and commune with God and Christ, the Holy Spirit, and your fellow believer. And if you're not doing that, you're not delighting in the Lord's Day, you're seeing the Lord's Day like the Pharisees saw it as a bunch of do's and don'ts rather than this is my delight. And your health, your marriage, Everything about you is on a downhill slide and you will crash. God knows how you were made because He's the Creator of us. And He knows what you need better than you know what you need. And so one of the things I see in Mark as I begin to consider the totality of the book is I see all this activity of the Lord's suffering servant Jesus Christ as He's moving through Mark, and yet, there He is. Come aside. Let's go to that quiet place. Brings His apostles with Him. Let's go before God. Also, we find the Holy Spirit deliberately presents Jesus as an able, active, accessible Savior as you move through Mark. Here is, here is Jesus here. Here's Jesus here. Here's Jesus there. He's everywhere, as it were, as you go through the Gospel according to Mark. One of the stories, and this is not a sandwich technique per se, but one of the, the, the accounts in the Gospel of Mark is Jesus has been busy uh, healing. And, and chapter 1 he cast out a. Uh, he heals a man with an unclean spirit. He cast a, a unclean spirit out of him. And then in chapter uh, one, verse forty, he's healing a leper. Well, what's in between that? Well, he goes to the house of Peter to eat, and 
to to supposedly lounge, but, it, but there he's pressed upon by the crowd. But he gets there and finds that Peter's mother-in-law has a fever. Well, I know a fever, it can be some kind of terrible thing. It can end your life. But we don't really get the sense that that's what's going on here. I don't think. But he goes to the house and here's Peter's mother-in-law and she has this fever. And so in between uh, uh, casting out these demons in chapter 1 verse 21 and healing a man with leprosy in chapter 1 verse 40, both of which are figurative of the depravity and the death of sin. Here's a woman with a fever. Jesus heals her. And she gets up and immediately begins serving them. All of us don't carry the same weight, burdens, have the same struggles, same issues that we deal with. You have pressures different than mine. You have struggles different than mine. But Christ is not a limited, tired, asleep on the pillow, as it were, Savior, but He's ever-present, ever-active. And we're told... According to Hebrews, He continues forever. And boy, do you see that in Mark. He continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Yes, we find a very... The gospel chock full of the deeds of Christ, but we find him a man of prayer, and we find this man of prayer, this mighty servant of the Lord, engaging even in the mundane things of life. And then we have the man, Mark the man. So let's move on to the author of the Gospel of Mark. Unlike most epistles, the authors of the Gospels are not directly identified. <clears throat> you can identify the writers of most every epistle, whether it be Pauline or general. They'll name themselves right out of the gate almost. That, that, was, that was part of the, the way a letter was written. I, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, write unto you. I, Paul, I, Peter. They, address, they, they identify themselves. Mark is nowhere identified in the, in the Gospel as the writer. Again, I go to Ferguson. He writes, Although we call this book Mark's Gospel, it was actually written anonymously. But there is an unbroken tradition in the church that it was indeed written by Mark. And I'm not going to spend any time arguing that. I'm just going to go on the presupposition that Mark is the writer of the book. Now, the question I would raise is this. What qualified him to write this book? Have all the people God could choose to write one of the four Gospels, why did He choose Mark? Why is He singularly qualified to write this book? Well, in my response, I'm reminded of the saying that Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And that's sort of the way I view why Mark's qualified. We're given direct information about Mark in the Scripture. 
In Acts chapter 12, verse 12, we're told his name is John, whose other name was Mark. His Hebrew name, his Jewish name is John. His Greek name, his uh, Latin name, his Roman name is Luke. Uh, it's Luke. Mark or Marcus. I don't know where my brain went. Excuse me. It's Mark or Marcus. Uh, by the time we get to the writing of Colossians, Philemon, 2 Timothy, which books are later, he's no longer called John Mark. He's just called Mark. It's kind of like Saul of Tarsus, Paul. He's Saul, that's his Hebrew name. Paul is his Christian, his really his Roman Greek name. And he no longer is known as Saul. He just simply becomes known as Paul. John, John Mark, just simply becomes known as Mark as you move through the Bible. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, we learn that he's a cousin to Barnabas. And in Acts 13, verse 13, we find that Mark has gone with Barnabas and Paul on a mission trip, first mission trip, and yet it's Mark who leaves the field, who deserts, who's guilty of desertion, who leaves the field of battle, as it were, and goes home like some immature, not fully mature man. He starts on something, and then he quits. And of course, his quitting will lead to a contention between Barnabas and Paul because on the second trip, Barnabas would take Mark, and Paul says, no. And he goes with Silas, and Barnabas goes with Mark. But... As you get toward the end of Paul's life, 2 Timothy, you find that Paul considered Mark a very valuable and trustworthy disciple and he desired his presence with him. We learn something else about Mark in Acts chapter 12. Turn, if you would, to Acts 12 for just a moment. And I bring this up because I, it has some bearing on where we're moving next in our thoughts here about Mark. In Acts chapter 12, verse 12, Peter has been uh, imprisoned. James has been killed. That's the heading of the chapter. Peter has been imprisoned. And Peter is miraculously rescued and he's delivered from his imprisonment. And when he gets out and he realizes he's outside the prison, what does he do? He goes somewhere. Where does he go? And why does he go there? Acts chapter 12, verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Now we're told a lot in those verses, a couple of verses. I learned that Mark's house, his mother's house, is a central non-gathering place in the church at Jerusalem and that when Peter is in prison, this is where people have gathered to pray because Peter reckons, well, this is where I need to go when he's released. Nothing's written in the sky. He just knows and when he thinks about it. This is where I'm going. And there when he gets there, what does he find? He finds a bunch of disciples gathered together in this house praying for him. But when he gets there and he has to knock at the door, it's not Mary that meets him. It's not Mark that meets him. 
It's a servant girl. What does that tell me? Well, this family apparently is well enough off that they can have a servant 24 hours a day. It lives in their house, and she's the one that greets Peter. So I know that the house is large enough to accommodate several disciples, and that this is a known gathering place of the disciples. That This is why Peter goes there. And I know that apparently Mary, the mother of Mark, is a rather wealthy woman, and they have enough space in their house to accommodate these people, which means a large house, and they have a live-in servant. I'm told a lot. And we could learn something there about using our homes and hospitality, much like Mary did. But I must go on because of time. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, I learned that Mark has a very special relation with Peter. And Peter refers to him as my son. And in fact, the thinking of the Gospel of Mark is it is an arrangement, a collection of Peter's sermons that Mark has written down. Of course, that does not in any way mean the Holy Spirit's not involved. That's not what is being suggested by that. But he, much like Timothy was a disciple of Paul, Mark is a disciple of Peter. And I won't go into all the reasons for that today. Next, I want to say not only do we have direct information about Peter, but we can, about Mark, but we can extrapolate from the Bible information about Mark, and this information becomes important. Might be what you call an educated guess. I don't have a "thus saith the Lord" or "here's the Scripture," but we draw from Scripture certain conclusions. Jeff Thomas writes. So John Mark was right there in Jerusalem. How do I know that? I just read in Acts 12, his house, he lives in Jerusalem. So John Mark's right there in Jerusalem as a teenager when Jesus came to the city preaching and healing. Well, I know he's of age that he can go with Paul and Barnabas on a missionary journey that uh, when Jesus came to the city preaching and healing and was quickly drawn into the circle of disciples with His family. How do I know that? Because this is where they're meeting. He's probably among the 500 people who saw Jesus risen from the dead. He had vital personal knowledge of what He was writing about. He'd spent hours with the Lord Jesus. He had known failure and its guilt, yet He had come back and was gifted by the Holy Spirit to write this Gospel in the friendship of Peter, who would have been just a couple of years older than he was. So we're going back to the very origins of Christianity to find out about the Lord Jesus, who He was and what He taught. And so these are things we begin to extrapolate. Now, look in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15, and we're going to find one of those incidents that's only recorded in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 15, verse 51. <clears throat> well, that's not right. I'm in the wrong spot. Uh, give me just a second. I'll find what I want. It's going to be in 13, 51. 14, 51. I'll get the right chapter. It's in Mark 14, 51. 
And a young man followed him. This would be Jesus. With nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Well, none of the other Gospels have that record. This is one of those very vivid accounts that only Mark tells us. Well, he could know this by the Holy Spirit giving this to him. Yes, that's definitely true. And he also could know this because, like many people surmise, he probably was that guy. He was that man that ran away at Gethsemane. Now, how did we get to that? Why would Mark be in Gethsemane with Jesus and the apostles? Well, we know that Jesus' arrest occurred late at night, or at least very early in the morning. In Mark 14, we're told, as Jesus prayed, His disciples were overcome with sleep. I don't think it's in the middle of the day. We know that. But they're tired, they're sleepy, and they, they can't stay awake. John 18, we're told that when Judas and the great crowd came to arrest Jesus, they came with swords, clubs, lanterns, and torches. Well, definitely they don't need lanterns and torches if it's broad daylight. So I know it's, it's late, it's night, it's dark. It's either late night or early morning when they come. In Luke chapter 25, I know that in verse 54 and following, I know that after His arrest, Jesus was some hours at the house of the high priest before the sun rose. And I also know that Christ had told Peter that before the sun rises, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny Me. And in Matthew 26, I know that Peter denied the Lord three times and then the rooster crowed. Now, the Christians crow, it doesn't have to be daylight. They crow in other times. I know that. You know that. But we know it's been night. We know he's been hours at the house of the high priest. We know the disciples are tired. And you put all that together and you go, well, it's late night, early morning when Jesus is arrested. And I know according to Mark chapter 14, the Lord's Supper is in a large upper room in Jerusalem. And I know in Acts chapter 1, verse 13, after the ascension of Christ, that the disciples met together in Jerusalem in the definitive term, the upper room. And I know when Peter was released from prison and he wants to go to where the church is to, to find people, he goes to the house of Mary where the disciples are gathered together in an upper room praying for him. Oh, and so, extrapolation from that is that it very well could have been at the house of Mark where the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper. And after the Lord's Supper, Mark's not there in that, but he's in the house. And after the institution of the Lord's Supper, Jesus with His disciples leave and they go to Gethsemane. And who hears them go out but Mark? And He gets up from His bed and he wraps around him his sheet that he has, and he goes along with them. And when they get there, all the disciples flee, and when they identify this young man, and they start to arrest him, all they can grab is the cover he has on, and he runs out of there naked, leaving the sheet in their hand, getting away to safety. Do I know that's consistent with Mark a little later on? I do. 
because I know that Mark will flee the missionary field. I know he's a runner. I know he wants his fleas. So based on all that, you begin to extrapolate certain information, but it's not thus saith the Lord. So what? So what? We often define life by some major event that has happened in our lives. If you've ever had cancer or some awful disease like that, or you've ever suffered a severe traumatic injury, you tend to measure life before it and after it. If you're a widow, widower, if you've lost a child, if you've been divorced, you've had some other tragedy in your life, we often tend to measure life before this event and after this event. And Christians, we definitely, we look at life before Christ and after Christ. And there is a distinction to be made. Paul reminds believers of this in 1 Corinthians when he says in chapter 6, verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't you know this? You must be righteous. If you're going to be in God's kingdom, you must be righteous. Do not be deceived. Don't be fooled. Don't buy into what the world is trying to sell us. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Well, I'm safe. I'm an arson. He didn't name me. No, that's not the point. The point is he's given a, a general, um, I don't say, I to say list, but a list of various ungodly activities, and, and you can put every ungodly activity in there, in identity. And Paul goes on to say, and such were some of you, that's why when we get to the pastoral uh, mandates, requirements for a man going into the ministry, the one I've, I've pointed out to people they hold from the cradle to the grave is he must be the husband of one wife. And I go, well, it says also here, not a drunkard, not a striker. He must be given to hospitality. He must be able to teach. So are you going to take all of those and you're also going to make the same application? Now, I'm not making light of the husband of one wife. Don't misunderstand me. But we don't make that same application. Why not? Well, such were some of you. And I could look out at this congregation in all honesty, and I don't know all of your past, all your history, but I could lock eyes with you and say, such were some of you. You were this. But guess what? You're not now. You're not now. Why not? But you were washed. You were sanctified. There's that word we looked at in Bible study this morning. And I don't think sanctification here is progressive sanctification. It's definitive sanctification. You are set aside. You're declared this holy. 
I've sinned dump truck loads since then. <clears throat> and let's go back to that. We often divide life to before and after. And a lot of times what we want to do is we want to go back before and we want to drag through into the present. And then I realize I'm presently a sinner also. If you've never read this book by Lloyd-Jones, my copy's old and falling apart. It's called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. I highly recommend this to you, and I know my time's up. Um, let me do this, and I'll close. He writes, The fact is, the moment we become Christians, we, a Christian, we become subjected to the most subtle and powerful assaults of one who's described in the Bible as the prince of the power of the air of the spirit who now rules in the children of disobedience, the God of this world, Satan, the devil. Let us then lay down as a principle, and the principle is not living in the past. We must never for a second worry about anything that cannot be affected or changed by us. It is a waste of energy. If you can do nothing about a situation, stop thinking about it. Never again look back at it. Never think of it. If you do, it's the devil's defeating you. Vague, useless regrets must be dismissed as irrational. My friend, stop dwelling on them. Quite apart from Christianity, it's a foolish thing to do. It is a sheer waste of energy and a waste of time. But let, let's go further and realize that uh, to dwell on the past simply causes failure in the present. And I'm not going to go on reading all this. I, was, I really would love to because it, it, it's so pertinent to what I'm, I'm trying to get at here. A lot of times people regret, well, why wasn't I saved earlier? Why didn't I know then what I know? What I know now, what, you know, why didn't I know it back then, what I know now? Why am I such a late bloomer? And they regret. And they regret. And regret can paralyze. And Peter talks about this in First Peter. He just simply says, you know, that we've, we all, we've, we've had our days there. And what time we've spent there, that's enough time. Don't spend any more time there. Get on with the program. That's a very poor rendering of what Peter says in First Peter chapter 4. But he says, just don't waste any more time in ungodly living. Why? Because Christ is coming. Mark, that wrote this gospel, is a young man I know he fled. I know he left the mission field. I have good reason to think that he fled in Gethsemane. I know he's a quitter. And yet when I go to 1 Corinthians chapter two, chapter 1, verse 26 and following, again, I'll not go there. I plan to, but I won't. I read about God's tool chest. And who do I find in God's tool chest? Defective, bent, broken instruments that he uses. He said, consider your calling, brethren. Not many of you are mighty. Not many of you are noble. Not many of you are the, the intellectuals of the world or the, the kings or the priests or the leaders of the world, but most of us, he says, are just broken sinners. And God is pleased to use that because no man is going to take God's glory from him. And so when something is done through a person like Mark, it's not Mark who gets the glory. But all glory goes to God. 
who can take such a weak vessel and use in such a critical, important way in the very life and history of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as we travel through the Gospel of Mark, you're going to encounter people who meet Christ. For some, like the rich young ruler, it's going to make no difference. He met him and he didn't. He thought what he had was worth more than Christ. You're going to meet some that their meeting with Christ is life-altering, like the demonic that Christ recovered. Changed his life totally. You're going to meet some that react with vitriol, like the, that crowd at the cross that, that they, call it, they, want him, they want him dead. And you're going to meet some that are impressed and confess, like the centurion who said truly, pointing at Christ, this was, this is the Son of God. So mainly as we begin our study together in Mark, we desire to meet Jesus, Jehovah's servant. And we pray that if you do not know Him, that you will come to know Him. And if you do know Him, you will learn to trust in Him more and be encouraged and edified in Him more. Now it's already been mentioned, I'm going to close, but we don't practice altar calls here. We covered some of that in our study of church history. I'll not go through all the reasons of that. But we do encourage you to go to the throne of grace. We do encourage you to close with Christ. We do encourage you to talk with a believer in a pew by you if you've got something in your heart and mind. We also encourage you that if you've never confessed Christ, repented of your sins, and been baptized, to talk to a member of the church, talk to one of the elders, and Certainly, you should do that. You're not being obedient if you're not doing that, haven't done that. So yes, we, we encourage that. But just now, I want to pray, and then afterwards, we'll take a moment of quiet reflection, then we'll stand together for our benediction and our doxology. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this great gospel according to Mark. And pray, Lord, that even as we try to introduce the book today, that we can... Uh, be excited about this study that we want to look into the book and read more of what is contained in this great gospel. And that in so looking, so studying, so considering, we will, we will clearly see Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners. So, Lord, bless our time. Bless the word that has been spoken. May it redound to your glory. And may it build up uh, the saints in the most holy faith and draw sinners to repentance, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Please stand, receive the benediction, and then.